Next station is Metropolis. 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 <laughs> Welcome to Metropolis, a podcast series presented by the student from the Urban Master at the Versailles School of Architecture. In each station, a guest will tell us about his vision of the city, its conception, its density, its future, and more. Hello Tamara, hello Alexander, we are really glad to talk with you today and you are both working in the office Gell, located in Copenhagen and today we organized our question in two parts. So first we will discuss with you in a general way about what the job of a town planner is and what's your way of functioning as planners and as an agency as well. This will also be a pretext for addressing the issues of parametric in the designs and questions of density in the city. In the second part, we are going to talk about study you did this year called a multi-city survey about COVID-19's impact on public space and public life. And this is a big topic for us as future architects, urbanists. We wonder about the impacts it will have on the practice of our profession. Of course, like lifestyles have changed, but what we would like to discuss today is about like how the actors in the making of the city will react and adapt to this context. So to begin, like we wanted to ask a few quick icebreaker question to introduce yourself and we are asking all the same question to our guests so you can both uh, answer shortly uh, this question first maybe uh, a book that inspired you uh, a book that inspired lately has inspired me uh, has been the botany of desire uh, by michael pollan um, and uh, another book called low tech radical uh, indigenism Those are okay. my yeah. recent... Thank you. Ta Tamara, do you have a book also? Yes, it's the book called Overstory by Richard Powers. And it's a kind of book where trees are sort of main characters, but as well something which is happening in the background and draws these parallels between the human world and the, kind of the world of the trees. I find it's very inspiring for our work as well. Sounds great, thank you. Uh, next question is about a city you recommend to visit after COVID time. Could be Copenhagen or another one? I think Tamara and I can agree on, on, on one. Yes, we suggest that we all go to Granada. We've been missing oh. it a lot, referencing it at many of our projects lately. We definitely miss a bit mm. of sun in our Scandinavian lockdown. Oh yeah, sounds great. We We'll need to visit this place after COVID. Next question is about uh, an architect or uh, urbanist that you admire. I can help, Alexander. I think we just because we've been reading this book in the office as well, The Lot Tech by Julia Watson. I think this approach of uh, introducing the indigenous practicing the practices you know, back into our urbanism and architecture is very inspiring. At least this is what is fresh in our mind. Okay, sounds great. Last question is about a movie you recommend to a young architect. Could be about architecture or could be just fiction or anything else. I, I would recommend any of the Antoniani movies because I think it's the way the urban space is depicted and his um, cinema is, is quite can, kind of very different, you know, from what you usually experience. And as well, I think he's, 
He's just a master of capturing this quality of space, which we often don't notice, just passing it, using it on the everyday. So I think something about as well as the play of the light and shadow and how the humans interact within it. And all of his movies are very inspiring for, for the cinematographic reasons. Uh, I, I would say uh, maybe not my favorite, but one, uh, one of the latest movies I've, I've seen, I've watched that uh, brought me a lot of joy was Minari. Um, it's a Korean uh, American movie about a Korean family that decides to leave everything in California and start a farm um, in the middle of the United States. Um, and I think what's really beautiful, I mean, it just portrays the everyday life of, of a family in, uh, in, in, in this kind of new uh, context for them. And, the, and how aspirations and ideals are are portrayed, which are, which was very refreshing in, in this age of immediacy. Yeah, I think I recommend this movie as well. I've seen it recently and it was like very great. So thanks a lot for these inspired uh, references. We'll put, uh, we'll put them into, in the text linked to the podcast for all our uh, viewers. So now maybe let's begin with the presentation of your team. Uh, maybe we can start question one with Alexander. Uh, by looking at your website, we were able to observe the interdisciplinarity in the collaborator of the agency. For example, uh, interaction designer, circular economy expert, food advisor, cycling experts. How are your work teams made up in the project according to the, um, all the participating professions? I think our offices have many different not only, not only different locations, but many different type of, of projects, different people uh, with very different geographical backgrounds and perspectives. And I think this is also a parallel and a reflection of the type of work that we, that we do and how not every project is the same. Uh, we, we range from like, uh, working with uh, food systems, healthy neighborhoods, uh, to projects around air quality, master planning, um, and designing from all the way, like from the conception of a pilot to a master plan. And I think this this would only be possible with with the different uh, backgrounds um, of of people and different skill set of of people in the office. Um, not. To not only to bring different perspectives, but um, different dynamics and working um, tools uh, for different projects. So, um, for example, in our latest projects, we developed a, a public space and public life platform with different um, disciplines. That was that would have only be possible uh, with that background. The different people and with different skill sets and different backgrounds. How do you work with the architects you selected to build um, the buildings you imagine on your master plan? How far does your role work? And maybe in other words, when does the job of urban planner hands? We have a, the, actually the project in Huachurada. Our scope of work usually um, ends with a master plan framework 
with uh, a continuing supporting services. We try to provide a framework and guidelines for, uh, let's say, for Wichurada or a piece of a of master plan in a city. And, um, and currently right now, I think we are advising architects, the architects that are actually designing the buildings uh, on how to kind of transmit the spirit of the master plan and the spirit of the public spaces and, 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 the, and the environments and urban ideals through architecture. And we, we've been having amazing discussions on, for example, the role of the balcony uh, in a different context, like as, such as, for example, let's say, Wichurala um, in Santiago and uh, the concept of see-through stairs. Um, I mean, many, many things. So I think our job finish as a, as a framework um, or you can go all the way um, to working with architects side by side in kind of making sure that these these ideals and kind of values of the, the na- design neighborhoods come across um, and are reflected in how buildings are are built. Um, and I think we've encountered sometimes problems with like local regulations in the sense of how can we build around the predated building codes in order for to allow for a better relationship between people in public spaces or between people and people in buildings and, and whatnot. So that's a role. Um, just one thing that we go quite detail in terms of we try to start working straight away in a large scale, but as well working on a scale of typologies and almost on a scale of uh, you know a brick mm-hmm. or a materiality. Because somehow these both very big things and very small are very important. And we, we are actually very attentive towards detail. And I think it's, we know that in the end, this sort of human scale and the perception where your eyes, it's, it matters a lot. So I think that kind of one of the key for us is to work on both and be maybe quite precise on the atmosphere. Maybe we can now talk about the conception part. We recently interviewed a French urbanist, Eva Samuel, who spoke about the importance of the site in the following ways. Let's not lose what costs nothing and which brings a lot, the site. How do you position yourself in the relation to existing sites? I guess no site is static. And kind of understanding of site as a dynamic system is always our starting point. So somehow we enter the system of different pieces working together or sometimes against each other. This kind of ecological system at play, it can be both human and social dynamics, which we want to explore for it. And then we want, I absolutely agree with Avas Noel. And for us, it's as well, it's never tabula rasa. It's never a brownfield. We're always looking for traces on the site, both ecology, but as well the, the human traces and sort of the patterns which are embedded. And then how they're intertwined kind of sets up the starting points for the design. So our job is not only working with this thing, but kind of capturing uh, their value and making them visible. We noticed that you're uh, working between like Dan- Denmark, South America, Asian public space. Like, oh, like is there an international way of thinking the city like uh, through these sites? The, the human species are surprisingly constant. And this can be seen in their desires, aspirations, sort of basic needs. But nonetheless, of course, 
certain different behaviors are affected by different things, like the cultural codes and memories and climatic conditions are extremely important. And as well, of course, there's always a layer of a socioeconomic, um, which affects it. But somehow the common, the common ground and the common understanding of the humans as the social creatures is surprisingly similar in all the contexts. And uh, if Alexander, you want to add to this one? Um, yes, um, I think we working in different places, um, the value, the, I would say the main small differences on how people value different things is usually um, the first thing that strikes us when, uh, when working in different places. Um, for example, in a place where it's 40 degrees Celsius, and um, it is really hard to be outside uh, and be under the sun. How much people value, for example, shade and how public spaces are shaped in order for people to be comfortable outside is completely different than, I would say, a Nordic condition, I would say, or Scandinavian, where we have very little light uh, throughout the year and the search for light is reflected on how people behave in public spaces. So, but as Tamara said, the human species is constant and the needs are and the desires and are very are very kind of similar, but these these start to these there are small differences that are affected by by the by context. And and I think our, our job is to um, kind of understand and uh, investigate what are these differences and investigate the reasoning behind how things are shaped and where they are, um, in order for us to even start thinking of proposing something. Thank you. So, as you just told, both of you were involved in a project in Huechu Clara in, mm -hmm. in Chile. You, you use an industrial fallow in order to offer new districts very linked to the mountain and the surrounding natural spaces. Are these industrial zones the future of urban densification? We believe that, I mean, we should be investing in retrofitting rather than expanding and thinking about upscaling urbanism rather than creating ur new urban environments. I think, and, and, and let's say post-industrial environments are part of this. Uh, the new neighborhood in which would ally is part of this. Uh, it's one of the, the examples of what this could be. And another, another example of this recognition and this kind of movement has, can, also see, can also be seen in the latest Pritzker Award. And, um, and I think there's also something about the future having to do with the relationship between the built environment, working environments, productive environments, uh, and all these dynamics of people within these and how these have changed. And perhaps maybe these can be in the future become part of uh, an interesting part of the city once again, because as, as these have been constantly changing, as we grow and things are growing and cities are growing and you can see all the numbers. We need to really question ourselves and question this growth, question like the tools that we have in order to accommodate this growth and how to do it. Okay, thank you, Tamara. Do you have something to, to add to this? I absolutely agree. And I think that maybe, you know, all of this, what we see currently, like this expansion and kind of blur of you know what is urban non-urban and the spaces of logistics and production which have a totally uh, different scale you know it's not not something we can relate at all but kind of this separation between 
the city and everything which is supporting the city. I think for us as urbanists, again, embed in this relationship and try to, you know, reconfigure, rewire, rethink and retrofit it in a different way is a key. I mean, it's, it's a key for a planet. It's a key as well for humans to be able to move forward. I, I think I think oh. I, I think I wanted to I think maybe we should reflect uh, about uh, I mean at least for me I find it extremely questionable or bizarre uh, that we can get mangoes or papayas in let's say Denmark in a Nordic country I think there is something off in that and 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 maybe stepping back and understanding. Um, and understanding the the how how like a, how 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 a city uh, what, what's the context of the city and what the city has to offer and then should be addressed. I don't know if that made any sense. I just find it fascinating that we have we have at this time and at this uh, moment in in civilization we can get these things from anywhere in the world to your doorstep. So there should there's something that should be thought about that. And it's interesting because we often, you know, we either work in the very central sites or somehow on the peripheral sites. And this kind of relationship between the two, which uh, Alex is hinting towards, is, is a recurring theme within all of the projects. Thank you. We definitely agree yeah. with that. <laughs> and I think it's a good transition to do with the study you collected this year about the COVID question, about like... Uh, density, city, and uh, degrowth as well. Because as we said earlier, you were both in the team which studied the COVID pandemic and its impact on cities and public space. And you have published two studies, one during the containment period and one after this uh, reopening period. Wanted you to tell us more about this topic. You base your projects on interviews like with residents and this one. What tools have you put in place to like organize such a thing and of course, the platform, the digital platform, which we just launched before, but was a big help because this allowed us to interview a lot of people and collect enormous amounts of data. And this is something, of course, it was a sort of a better version. I think it proved to be very, very successful. So it definitely helped us to kind of to have enough of this thick kind of diverse data. And then, of course, it's... Um, now, maybe what is the role of architect? I think it's asking the right questions, which is really difficult because um, it, it requires sort of enough of research and understanding and kind of trying to embed yourself in the situation and be very agile and kind of responsive to the environment as well to the people. And then a lot of it is sort of personal. We actually made all of the people in the office to go out and uh, try to take interviews and make observations and spend as much as possible time outside in the public spaces in different locations. So we, as well, I'm, I'm teaching and I can try to involve all my students. So as many as possible and as many different, as well, it's very important that we are quite diverse. We, you know, the gender-wise and the age-wise, background-wise, we're coming from very different parts of the world. And I think this really helps when you have these different lenses together so somehow maybe the key is the empathy once you're the interviewing but as well the other key is allowing for people with who you work to take ownership 
of what both of you know in terms of our interviews, but as well ownership of the projects themselves. For this specific project, one of the most important components was having key stakeholders within every city and having support from different cities and the will of uh, cities to to kind of embrace this process as well. Um, and um, and really kind of really work together with them in giving them a platform in order for them to kind of be empowered and take ownership of the study and what's actually happening outside. Um, and I think that that is key, especially when, when we think about um, co-creation and social participation and co-production I think the whole the whole key of I think at least personally the 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 essence of it for me is empowering different stakeholders that you bring to the table that have a say uh, that sorry and empowering them to have a say and a stake on the future of their city on the future of their building on the future of their square um, and because this not only just not not only enhances the personal relationship you have with um, whatever the, the project is you're doing, but also a sense of responsibility. And this is um, the sense of responsibility is, is like almost pushing for a civic duty on, um, uh, on your neighborhood, on, your, on the building that you, that you work on, how you relate with other people. And that is, that is absolutely um, uh, important. Thank you. And then how oh, you go from this question to urban planning, like what's the link between them? For the studies that we made in COVID, we were trying to understand and identify the impact COVID has had on public life and public spaces, human dynamics and cities, to be able to ask the right question. I think it's up to us to define, depending on, I think, also the project, how we take those insights, um, ideas, concepts, and kind of hypotheses, as, as, as you can maybe call them, and turn them into projects. And I think that's why many projects can be very different. And, and if we take, for example, the COVID uh, report, if you would maybe realize that not 10 projects or five projects uh, from that, they would be quite different. Different in terms of scale, different in terms of uh, brief, as well, uh, if we talk about mobility, if we talk about public spaces, if we talk about housing, I mean, you can find a project in each one of them, I think. But uh, again, at the end of the day was asking the right questions to the project and to people as well um, to get those insights and to get basically to, to get those hypotheses to, for us to develop projects. Because at the end of the day, I think we can have 10 spin-off projects out of this one that addresses housing, the housing layout, one, one that addresses how people move in the city and mobility pilots and uh, strategies for reopening, strategies for public spaces. And I think they can differ completely in their scope. But I think if, if your question is more related on how, does, how do these answers translate, for example, to planning in general, they, they are directly related they drive many policies, as we can see. They drive um, design drivers. 
in how we start to design the city. They drive uh, concerns that we need to absolutely make sure uh, that we uh, respect on, on, on a design project. So it can take many shapes and many forms, but I think what's key is having them present. Thank you. Yeah, we told you that you, we were working this uh, semester about like parametric and the influence of data computer uh, parameters in the design of the city. So that's helping us about this idea of, so thank you for your answers. Uh, are you happy with the fact that more and more uh, computers are uh, designing the city? Like, what's your relation with other offices that are doing such a work? Um, I think that we see computers as tools and tools that are driven by people at the end of the day. And I think when, when we look at big data and... Uh, the uh, rage that uh, and, sorry, and rage and rave that uh, big data has had in the last few years. I mean, big data can be extremely useful, but it is big. Um, and with so much of it, it can be very hard to navigate. So when we look at parameters and data, and when we try to approach data, we look at data as thick data on deepening uh, the layers of data that we can acquire to tell a more complete story about uh, places, about people. For example, where, uh, when we, where we add human experiences and document behaviors uh, as a way to tell uh, the story and fill, fill gaps that big data usually has inevitably due to its scale. Our work really works on, yes, utilizing these tools and understanding that these tools help us to define uh, a starting point and a new kind of entry points towards urbanism. But it is, it's that. And I think it's also, it also depends on the curation and the synthesis that us people and designers can make out of it. Um, because without that human mind and, and say hand, this there will be no story to tell. And the synthesis and the processing, the human processing of information and how you transform this data into actionable information is, I think, the, the kind of the key of our design practice in a way. Yeah, I think one example of the different data, one early example of this, you can see it at the kind of the map of cholera, like from Jon Snow. Uh, I don't know if you know, if you guys know about this, this, this map that was one of the first maps used to visualize the cholera outbreaks on a neighborhood and identify the source of the polluted wells. With that frame and with that kind of starting point, that's how we see as uh, making the invisible visible by adding layers and turning it into big data. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll have a look at this, this map. Uh, and put it in the comment of the uh, podcast or so. We talked about the conception questions. Maybe we go more depth in the contents of this COVID study. And like in the beginning of your study, you asked two questions, which are, will things ever go back to the way they were? And are there things we are going now that will become part of the new normal? Maybe today with the little distance we have now, I'm crossing the fingers. Have you found answer to this question? Um, what we found really interesting is somehow, you know, out of all these limitations, it becomes, it's very fertile ground for, for new sort of opportunities. And maybe it 
uncovered something which is at, is kind of an essence of many things. So for us as urbanists, I think it was an extremely interesting point as well to observe a city, you know, a city without retail. And then people would perhaps start to gather and uh, sort of gravitate to different places. But the other thing that they would still sometimes gravitate to the streets where there was no retail, just because they want to be amongst others, you know, like sp some specific or reappropriation of public space by groups which are underrepresented in a so-called, you know, classic city, maybe or classic, very sort of representational public spaces of the cities. They were, you could see many more teenagers and children as well. So this really uh, makes us think about when we leave our business as usual, you know, non-pandemic time, what are these groups which are left out? Uh, will it become the new, new normal? We, we hope so. We hope that we will kind of use it as an opportunity to perhaps to find a different quality within our uh, urban environments. And the other very interesting thing which came out is this kind of notion of hyperlocality. You know, the context of very hyper-local became so important that we started to appreciate the things we haven't really cared about that much because, you know, you could take a flight easily or somehow the, the physical space surprisingly became more important during the pandemics. Let's hope that this would be, uh, this was something which would stay for us for longer. And perhaps the other thing which is very interesting, this notion of like interior and exterior spaces and boundaries, I think as well, it's something which will be, definitely will be again reconsidered within architecture and urban planning much more. You know, of having, giving enough space or having enough of transitions from this private to public. Next question was about the ecology, because our master is called urbanism ecology. That's one of your reflections in your uh, post-COVID city uh, kind of uh, thought. What have COVID brings for this question of ecologies in the city? I think it's, it's really like ecology has now been proven to be extremely important. Um, but we do not see um, kind of the work that we do or the future of our work as about designing or attaching, let's say, biodiversity. On the other hand, we, 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 see it, uh, we see it as really how we design the relationships and possibilities between people, the environment, and other species. And that ranges from, you know, um, climatic human needs and, and designing the relationship between, our, uh, between you as a human and the water, you as a human and fresh air and, and light, and what are those places that um, allow for that. So we think of, um, let's say, fresh air, water. How can we decide, how, how, could we, how can we design buildings in order for um, people to access fresh air, fresh air or a higher quality of air? Uh, how do we design the relationship with water? Um, um, one example of that is, for example, a successful, what, what is a successful waterfront, but also how do we design with water coming down from the sky um, and so on and so forth. So we, we really see it as a, as a balance rather than a, like an anthropocentric one-sided equation of things. So we can really create an understanding of, really try at least in our work on creating an understanding of how these systems work um, and how people interact with the context and how the, the context interacts with people and how does that affect uh, both sides of, of, of kind of the discussion.
and how really understand how we as humans position ourselves within them while allowing for other and all species to thrive. Because at the end of the day, it's about that relationship. It's, it's again, it's about that relationship with of, um, between our species and, and our condition as people, the ecological context we're kind of in. And, um, you know, we can, from the, from the door to the balcony, to the square, to the park edge, uh, to the meadow, to, you know what I mean? So it's, it's really, um, these are all places of encounters between people and their environment. And I think really focusing on, um, on these uh, and allowing for the wood would maybe pose a more resilient infrastructural system would be again more resilient to some of these shocks um, like for example the kind of the pandemic um, and that I think has revealed where more clearly uh, how we kind of define ourselves as humans within that within this ecological and also um, ecological and built framework this is really kind of what we really should be working towards on define on, on understanding what these places are and how these how, what these what these things yeah what these things and spaces could do um, in order for both sides of the of the discussion to thrive. Oh yeah, thank you. We were asking this question because we talked about the fact that uh, when people went very crazy when they saw that there were actual dolphins in the water in Venice or fox in the street in London, nature in the city went as a big topic during COVID. So. Another big point was question of mobility and what's the impact of COVID in the in the mobility of the city. I think we've seen, as Tamara said before, many different ways in which people are redefining the streetscape of the city and how places are being used. Uh, and this is extremely exciting, of course. And we've also seen the um, the many changes on how people move. And uh, again, this perception with this perception of feeling safe while moving, and this is what we've seen. This is why we've seen, for example, in uh, in Paris as well, and uh, and in in Denmark, how like um, walking and cycling have been the most resilient. Uh, you're in the most control of your um, personal environment and your well-being in that way. I, I think the the role of of an, of an architect or a planner uh, within this frame. It's how can we allow for these now uh, changes either to stay or to happen, to keep on happening as things start to, to change. Because things have, have changed. And recently we've seen, uh, not, not, in, not in Denmark, but I was reading um, um, an article in which, uh, unfortunately, for example, public transport hasn't really bounced back that much from uh, the beginning of, of before lockdown. Um, and, uh, and again, this has to do with this perception of, of, um, of fear of uh, getting something or, or being with other people. Um, so th there, is a, there is a discussion to be made around uh, how people will, will relate to other people in public spaces and streets and how they will get and move around and, and go around. Um, because yes, I think the pandemic has uh, brought us in a way physically further away from each other, but in many, many, many other ways closer than uh, we've ever imagined. I'm being very opportunistic. And I think that yeah. it's something about time. Mm -hmm. And actually you mentioned Copenhagen, but I don't think that we are such a good example of it. 
Okay. We didn't really, you know, we have quite, um, we had quite a heavy legal framework and I don't think anyone would be able to change a street in one night. You would have a lot of resistance from residents because even in Copenhagen, people love their parking places and uh, driving. So I, I really see that in, in the cities, which used it as an opportunity to do that. And then kind of, maybe it's a bit of a shock, but I hope that then, you know, as well by just rolling it out and testing it out, you can see that, okay, maybe it's not so bad. And maybe it brings some totally other qualities like fresh air, you know, more activity. And I mean, this is also, um, I think, as Tamara said, an opportunity to, to, to test it out and, 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 and be out there. And we've seen all of the fantastic bike lanes that appeared across the world from one night uh, to the other um, because people needed to go get from one place to the other. And biking was a safe way to do it. But then again, the I think uh, on the comment of has, let's say, COVID succeeded in changing mobility in the city in a definitive way, I think there is and there will be a discussion on pressure on really looking closely at what the kind of the 15-minute city is, what the five-minute city is, what the five-second city is. You know, I think it's it really, it will, it will change and it will, I mean, change at least in terms of the discussions that we're having on um, how we move and get around the city. Thank you for this explanation about your study about COVID. Um, maybe we can add two more questions to conclude. Can you imagine in a city in 2040, what parameters of urban creation have disappeared and which ones appeared? So it's a big question and <laughs> I really it. hope that we will make it to 2040. And maybe if we are to, to make it to 2040, we have to change our parameters right now. And I guess it's something which we were talking about in all the previous questions of understa understanding the relationships and hierarchy and us humans being a part of this kind of larger uh, ecological framework, you know, and maybe uh, forgetting a bit more of a sort of the many fictions we created, like a lot of the prof profit driven urbanisms, perhaps we'll have to address the way they're operating. I think the work, you know, the uh, value, I can't remember the name now, but the, it's very interesting work on putting value on the ecological systems. And I think it's definitely something which will start to recur more and more in our work. If we want to have what we have right now and have more of what, of what we have right now in 2040, I don't think we will ever going to make it. And the things that we value the most, investing in these and, and kind of ensuring that, that these could still happen is extremely important. The possibility to be in front of a waterfront or a park or you know, nature, if we really care and we really, really kind of idealize these, these things, um, we cannot continue Uh, doing the things that we're, we're doing right now as a society. Otherwise, those will be the ones that are that will end up disappearing. I want to be hopeful and you have to be hopeful because if, if you're not, then what's the point? No, there is a lot of work ahead, you know. And yeah. when you really start to think about it, there are so many things we would have to redefine, starting from materiality to, you know, proximity and either reinvent or, you know, coming back to Julia Watson's work 
to kind of learn from different type of practices. Do you think this is the, the role of the architects of the urban planner to solve all these questions? The architect <laughs> and the urban planner does not solve all these questions. To be the mediators. I think the mediators kind of and the, the synthesizers probably the main value we can bring, the be in between the fields. But we cannot solve anything by ourselves. But what we can do quite well is to kind of overlap around mm -hmm. and stay uh, curious and maybe uh, ask, ask questions, the right questions, the uncomfortable questions. Do you think we are good enough today or we should do more as architects? If anyone is happy with the status quo of things, then again, there will be no uh, reason for our, any kind of discipline, right? I think we've come so far from many things, and uh, but yet we have many, many, many things to address. Lately, we've kind of addressed the, or, or we've kind of ridden the wave and of really slowing down and understanding what slowing down means for um, people, cities, social dynamics, how things relate to each other, how you perceive things as well, and kind of the aspirations and needs that now have maybe changed. How are we doing so far? I think we're doing, I think we've done good work, but we, we shouldn't be happy with our status quo. Is there any advice you could give to any uh, aspiring urban planners as we are, Louise and I, and all the people listening to us? Curiosity. Be curious. Be hungry for understanding things. Like really invest time in observing. That will give you an understanding of how things work and how what things are and the reason why things are and enable for you to make a decision. This, this last year has proven everyone uh, the need for being flexible and kind of be, keep an open mind and, and be able to adapt. That's, I mean, that's my, my advice. And uh, critical, and this comes back to a previous question, critical to what is around, critical towards yourselves and your readings. But I think it's, again, it's important to continue questioning. Thank you again, Tamara and Alexander, for your time and this very enriching exchange. Uh, we advise, of course, our listeners to go read the study about public life during COVID on your website and also have a look on the project we talked about during this interview. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much for, for your time. No, thank you for having us.